Welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. And if you're new, my name's Chad. Welcome. We are one church that meets in multiple locations. So this morning, our Stone Canyon family is meeting, as well as others who will join us online. So if you would, put your hands together and welcome them into our time of service here today. Well, I thought we would start off having a little bit of fun. I'm going to take a quick survey, and I want to see how many of you guys have experienced some significant change over the past year to 18 months or so. So I'm going to throw out some questions, and when I do, just raise your hand if you fall into one of these categories, and let's see who's been through a season of change here recently. And the first one is this. How many of you over the past year to 18 months have started a new job or a new school? Let me see your hands high in the air. Okay, a good number of you. That's what I thought. Okay, how many of you have welcomed a new baby into your home or a new grandbaby into your family. Let me see the hands. Okay, some of you are very excited about that. Awesome. Okay, how many of you are driving a new car, started driving a new car over the past year to 18 months? Anybody drive a new vehicle? Several of you. All right, good. How many of you have started a new friendship, a new meaningful friendship over the past year to 18 months? Great. Anybody start a new hobby of any sort at all? Okay, a few of you. That's good. Um, how many of you guys uh, maybe got a new boyfriend or girlfriend over the past year to 18 months? Anybody? Okay, how many of you want a new boyfriend or girlfriend? All right, okay, you can put your hands down. That's a joke, all right. So if you raise your hand for any of the things that I just mentioned, if you would, put it back up, okay? Just put your hand back up. Now look around, look at all the hands. Change is just part of life. You can put your hands on now. Change is just part of life, whether we like it or not. You know, and a lot of change is fun, and it's exciting, and it brings us hope. We look forward to it. But then there's some change that takes a while for us to get used to it. There's some change that's just hard to get used to. Over the past 18 months, my family, we've experienced a lot of change. We moved from Kentucky to here. We moved from the land where everyone wears blue to the land where people wear either crimson or orange. Pick your poison. Uh, that was a joke too. Okay, sorry. Don't, don't get mad at me over that. But we moved to Oklahoma, and we had to pack everything up, pack up our lives, and move here. And so with that comes a whole lot of change. And you know, and even though it was all good, it was what we believe God wanted us to do, and it's what we wanted as well, that doesn't mean there weren't difficult times. Change is hard. And there are some things along the way that we had to get used to, different changes we had to experience. One change that I'm still getting used to is the weather out here in Oklahoma. And I'm not talking about the cold temperatures. I mean, it was cold this morning when I got up. I'm not talking about the cold temperatures. We had cold temperatures back in Kentucky. And I'm not talking about the rapid change of weather that we experience either, because one day it's like 16, the next day it's 18. You know, I don't quite understand that, but people around here say, if you don't like the weather in Oklahoma, just stay a day. Let me tell you something. They said the same thing back in Kentucky. I think it's like that a lot of places. Uh, it's no different here. But the thing that takes, that's taken a while for me to get used to is the wind out here, the wind in this part of the country. And I mentioned before, I have a huge fear of wind. I mean, I don't like it at all, and I'm still getting used to it. We did put in a storm shelter. That gave me a little bit of peace of mind, but still, on those windy days, it just makes me nervous. And sometimes I feel like the little kid in this video that I saw the other day, if you want to go ahead and play it on the screens, uh, this little kid, he was struggling with the wind, if you can't tell. I heard that he lives in Kansas, and it was a windy day, and he was just trying to do probably what his parents want him to do, you know, take the trash out, one of his chores. He's trying to be an obedient kid, trying to do what his parents want him to do, but he is struggling. He is fighting the wind, and as you can see, it is an ongoing battle, and I, I do. I feel for this kid. I understand it. This is how I feel some days, and eventually, if you notice this video, the wind just gets the best of him, and he doesn't win out in the end. <laughs> Now, I feel sorry for that kid. I really do. I'm not making fun of him because I'm there with him. I don't like the wind either. I'm sure he doesn't. 
Some change, it just takes some getting used to. But some change isn't just hard to get used to, some change is just hard. It's hard in general. Some change is just difficult. And it's amazing to me how we hope for change and we pray for change and we plan for change and we want change, but then when change comes, it stresses us out. Because one thing that I've learned in life is that all change is stressful. All change, even good change, is stressful. Yes, change can be fun and exciting and it can bring us hope, but it can also be scary, overwhelming, even immobilizing at times. You ever been there? Has change ever caused you to feel like that? I have. I mentioned the past 18 months, my family relocated from Kentucky to here, and that change was good. And I'm somebody, I don't stand up here and just try to paint a prettier picture than what's actually there. We love being here. We love being in Oklahoma. We love Owasso. We love First Church, and we believe this is where God wants us to be. But that doesn't mean there weren't hard days in the process. I remember several days when Alice and I, after we made the decision to come here, just sat down and kind of cried because change is hard. Now, what you guys don't know is a year before First Church ever contacted me, Alice and I kind of had this sense, kind of had this feeling that change was coming. We were at a great church that was growing. In fact, in the 10 years I'd been there, we had doubled in size. If you threw any metric out there when it comes to church growth, we were growing in every single way that you can imagine. The church was healthy, and we were content, and we were happy. And that's why Alice and I kind of knew that maybe there was some change coming. And we started to pray a lot about it. And we got the feeling that maybe God could be opening a door for us to serve in a greater capacity. And sure enough, that door was open when First Church contacted me. And I remember from the very beginning, we kind of felt like God was in this. But it was scary. It was very scary. And so we had many different conversations with First Church. We talked to our friends and family. We ran the idea by some of our mentors. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And eventually, we came to the conclusion this is what we need to do. We need to go to First Church. God is in this. And so we were excited about it and we were pumped, but still, when we told the news to our friends and family, when we announced it at the church where we served, and we told everybody what was gonna happen, we shocked them when we said we were moving to Oklahoma. I mean, we heard more than once, why are you moving to Oklahoma? And we just kept having to say, we feel like this is the best place for us to serve. And so we put our house on the market and went through all those changes, and really, all the changes that we experienced can really, they can be symbolized by these boxes because we basically had to pack up our entire lives everything that we knew and bring our lives out here and I remember the last night in our house back in Kentucky everything was basically boxed up and so we decided we were just going to play and have a fun time with our kids Alice and me and so we played uh, hide and seek around the boxes we built a fort here's a picture of us actually just goofing off and we took a selfie playing uh, around these boxes and we just had a fun night the last night in our house but after the kids settled down Alice and I went and we sat down beside a stack of boxes kind of like this one right here beside me and we sat down by these boxes and we just cried. And I remember looking at her and asking her a question. I'll never forget the question I asked her. I just said, we're doing the right thing, right? And I knew the answer, but why did I still ask the question? Because change is hard. Even good change, even change that we know God wants us to make is hard at times. Even when we want it, even when we expect it, even when we plan for it, even when we pray for it, Change can still be hard. And I believe that's exactly what the Israelites experienced when they left Egypt. And really the change that they experienced, well, these boxes kind of symbolize it as well. 
Because the Israelites had to pack up their entire lives, leave everything that they knew in Egypt in order to experience the freedom that God wanted them to experience. And if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know that we're looking at the period of the Exodus in the Old Testament, and we're calling our series right now here at First Church Set Free, because the Israelites, they were enslaved in Egypt, and God orchestrated many different things so that the Israelites could be set free. And for 400 years, God's people, they had been enslaved in Egypt, and they were desperate for change, because the Egyptians were abusing them. They were being brutal. They were beating them. I mean, they were, they were very hard to the Israelites and in fact in Exodus 1 verses 13 through 14 it says they the Egyptians made their lives the Israelites bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and all their labor the Egyptians used them ruthlessly we might say they abused them and misused them ruthlessly the Israelites were miserable translation you know those pyramids and ancient structures that we still see today in Egypt they didn't appear by accident for 400 years, the Egyptians had a free labor force of two million Israelite slaves that they used to build up their nation. But here's the thing, it wasn't just that the Egyptians abused the Israelites. They also did things much worse. Like that one Pharaoh who we've talked about before, who decided that in order to control the Israelite population, he was going to practice racial infanticide, killing, murdering all the baby boys from the Israelites. The weight of all that would have been difficult for anyone or any people group to bear. And that's why in Exodus 2 verse 23, the Bible says, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. This is a people that's desperate for change. And so God sees their misery and he decides to act. And what he does is he calls this shepherd this insecure shepherd named Moses who actually was living as a fugitive at the time in the land of Midian and he calls Moses and says, Moses, I want you to go and stand up to the most powerful man on the planet, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And Moses, he's not convinced that he can do this but God reassures him and eventually Moses decides to obey God. And so Moses goes to Egypt and he stands before Pharaoh and he does exactly what God tells him to do. He says what God tells him to say and he says, God wants you, Pharaoh, to let my people go. And the Pharaoh basically laughs at Moses. Who is this shepherd guy anyway? Who is this fugitive? Who does he think he is? There's no way I'm letting the Israelites go. They're my labor force. And so God told Moses, if Pharaoh doesn't believe you, or doesn't listen to you, then I there's some miraculous signs you can do to try to convince him that I'm with you. So Moses does these miraculous signs right in front of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh still, he's not impressed. He says, my magicians here in my kingdom can mimic all the things that you just did. I'm not impressed. I'm not letting your people go. And Moses warns Pharaoh, okay, God is going to prove you in a much powerful way, much more powerful way, that he is who he claims to be. You need to listen to him now, and Pharaoh doesn't. So God blankets Egypt with plagues, one plague after another, a plague of hell, a plague of locusts, a plague of frogs, and the list just goes on and on. Ten different plagues God sends upon Egypt, the last one being the plague of death, which affected every single Egyptian family. And all of these plagues were meant to invalidate the false gods of Egypt and invalidate Pharaoh's power, proving that God is the one true God. But it's not until the 10th and final plague, the death of the firstborn, that Pharaoh finally relents and says, Moses, get out of here and take your people with you. I've had enough. And so finally, 
After hundreds of years in slavery, the Israelites are free to leave Egypt. And here's the thing, they don't go alone. God goes with them. It's not that God just orchestrates their freedom and says, okay, now you're free, go, live. No, he actually goes with them. He leads them through the desert to the promised land. They're not on their own. What's interesting is the Bible says that God leads them with a pillar of cloud during the day that went in front of them and then a pillar of fire during the night to lead them. So cloud by day, fire at night in the sky led them to where God wanted them to go. It's kind of a divine GPS system. I don't know about you, but I can't get anywhere without the GPS on my phone. I'm not good with directions, and so I have to put an address in, and that little, you know, blue spot takes me exactly where I need to go. I just follow that little blue ball on there, and I go wherever it tells me to go. I have to have it, and so they have a divine GPS system here that's taking them exactly where they need to go, but Exodus 13, 17 contains an interesting detail. Look at what it says. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter, though that was the shorter path, the easier path, the better path. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Now, why in the world would God think that the Israelites would want to go back to Egypt? Weren't they slaves there? Hadn't they been begging and pleading for hundreds of years to be set free? I mean, weren't these the same people that had been abused and beaten? Weren't these the same people that had seen their infant sons murdered by a ruthless dictator? Why in the world would the people want to go back to Egypt to be slaves again? Because God knew something about human nature. What's unknown is always less comfortable than what's known. In other words, it's easier to live in the comforts of captivity than embrace the uncertainty of change. See, in God's eyes, the easiest way isn't always the best way. God knew that at the first sign of trouble, the Israelites would be tempted to go back to Egypt, even if that meant being slaves again. And you know, that's exactly what happened. God leads the Israelites to the Red Sea, and they're camped out by the Red Sea, and during their whole journey, Pharaoh changes his mind, and Pharaoh says, wait a second, what have we done? We've let our whole labor force go. We're not going to build up this kingdom on our own. There's no way we can do it. We need to bring the Israelites back. So in Exodus 14, verse 5, it says, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them, about the Israelites, and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. That's a nice way of putting it, isn't it? So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. To do what exactly? To recapture the Israelites and bring them back as slaves. So Pharaoh mounts a major military offensive. And when the Israelites, who are camped up by the Red Sea, hear the chariots from Egypt coming, what do they do? They say, oh, this is bad. The Egyptians are coming, but that's okay. God is with us, and he's the one who's orchestrated this whole thing. He's the one that wanted to set us free, and we've seen him do miracle after miracle after miracle. He's with us. I mean, he's the one leading us right now. Cloud during the day, fire at night. God's with us. So yeah, this is bad. We don't want to have to face the Egyptians, but we can do it because God's with us. He's on our side. Is that how they respond? No, not at all. They panic. Read and see their reaction in Exodus chapter 14. If you have your Bibles or a Bible app on your phone or tablet, follow along with me in Exodus 14, starting at verse 10. You can also follow along on our First Church app if you want to there. And this is what the Scripture says. It says, As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. 
They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out to Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? Is that what they were saying? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. In other words, Moses, we would rather stay slaves than be where we are right now. Why? Why was that their response? Again, weren't these the same people who cried out to God for help? Weren't these the same people who wanted freedom? Weren't these the same people who were abused by the Egyptians and watched their children murdered? Weren't these the same people who wanted God to change their situation? And now they're basically telling Moses, we never wanted to leave Egypt in the first place. You talked us into this. This is your fault. What happened? Why would they say something like that? Remember what I said earlier. It's easier to live in the comforts of captivity than embrace the uncertainty of change. And right now, what's comfortable to them is slavery because it's what they've always known. And this wasn't, this wasn't the only time that the Israelites had this response. In fact, if you know the rest of the story of the Exodus or if you've seen the movie The Prince of Egypt or The Ten Commandments, you know that the Israelites aren't left at the Red Sea. God delivers them again. And what God does is he parts the Red Sea. The Israelites are able to cross the Red Sea on dry ground and then God allows the Egyptian army to follow. And when the Egyptian army gets into the Red Sea, God closes it back up and the Israelites never have to worry about the Egyptians again. God delivers them, rescues the Israelites once again. But here's the thing, they're still not to the promise land just because they got to the Red Sea that wasn't the end of their journey God is still leading them to the promised land and along the way time and time again the Israelites cry out to God and they say they want to go back to Egypt one of those occasions happened when God was providing for the people See, the Israelites were hungry, so God sent them manna from heaven, bread from heaven for them to eat. So basically, they got a free meal every single day from God. They didn't have to work for their food. They didn't have to earn it in any way. God was just providing them with manna, bread from heaven. And we would think that the Israelites would be excited about this, would be grateful for this, but that's not what happens. If you read in Numbers 11, verse 1, look at how the Israelites respond after a while of receiving this manna from heaven. It says, soon the people began to complain. Oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt, and we all had all the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic we wanted. That sounds appetizing, doesn't it? But now our appetites are gone. All we ever see is this manna. So get this, every single day, God was supernaturally feeding the people and now they say, we're so tired of this manna, we miss Egypt. Do you think that they're remembering the past a little better than it actually was? I think we do this as well. I think we have a tendency to romanticize the past and this is one reason why we struggle with change. Because we glamorize the past and we think the past was better than it actually was. I mean, think about this. These people are saying, hey, we had all the meat we wanted back in Egypt. And we had all the onions and cucumbers and everything else they talked about that we wanted back in Egypt. And maybe that was the case. Maybe that was true. But did you forget you were also slaves back in Egypt? Did you forget about being abused by the Egyptians? 
Did they forget about their children who were being murdered by a ruthless Pharaoh? I mean, yeah, maybe they had all that food, but was it really that great back in Egypt? Wasn't this the same people that were crying out to God for help? It's amazing how we can romanticize the past and think that it was actually better than it was. At the last church I served, there was an older lady there named Ruth Ann who I absolutely loved. And she was just a straight shooter. She told you like it was. That's why I liked her. I never wondered where I stood with her because she told me. And you guys probably know people like this. And Ruth Ann, she was just great and my family loved her dearly. And one day I remember we were at church and I was talking, uh, in a, talking with a group of people. They were all Ruth Ann's age. And they were talking about the good old days. Those were their words. The good old days. You know, back when they were kids and how things were so much better back then than they are today. And talking about how this generation, which by the way, would be my generation just doesn't get it and they just don't understand and all this technology that we have today is bad and they were just kind of ripping my generation and I'm just feeling about this small as they continue to talk and talk and talk about how great things used to be but it's not that way anymore and as they kept talking finally Ruth Ann interrupted them I love Ruth Ann <laughs> and she interrupted them and she said you guys can have your good old days I lived through those days too and you know what I like my air conditioning I like my heat in my house. I like the fact that I don't have to go outside and use the bathroom anymore. I like the fact that we have modern medicine. I like our hospitals that we have today. I, I like the fact that I have a DVR and I can record my soap operas anytime and watch them. She said, I like all the modern conveniences. You guys can go back and live in your golden days. I'll take today. I like today. And I really appreciated that a lot. Now, I'm not saying that there weren't good or bad things from years ago and there's not good and bad about today. I'm not saying that. But but we have a tendency sometimes to romanticize the past and just think, oh, you know, years ago things were so much better. I remember I had a conversation with another older lady uh, in our church and she said, you know, everybody wants to go back to Mayberry. And I'm thinking, I don't know if everybody does, but um, apparently you've heard people say that. She said, everybody wants to go back to Mayberry. She said, Chad, I got a secret for you. Mayberry never existed. It was on TV. It never really existed. And I thought that was a pretty good point. We have a tendency sometimes to glamorize the past. And what we end up doing when we glamorize the past is we make another mistake. We fail then to appreciate the present. We fail to appreciate and acknowledge the good things that are going on right now because we get stuck in a certain time period and think, hey, it was only good then and we miss that maybe God is doing good things right now. You know, that was the case for the, for the Israelites. Yes, Yes, it's true that they didn't have all the meat and stuff that they had back in, Egypt, back in Egypt, but here's the thing. God was still providing for them. So it was a good thing they were getting manna from heaven. That was something that they didn't deserve, that God was giving them. And so maybe they were tired of manna, but I can't imagine that manna was bad. In fact, if you look at the original Hebrew at that word manna, it literally is translated hot and fresh Krispy Kreme donut. No, not really, it's not, but... <laughs> I'm sure if it was from heaven, it was good, you know? I'm sure it tasted great. But the Israelites, they get tired of this manna to the point that they say, oh, come on, God. We've had manna hotcakes and manna waffles and manna flaming souffle and we've had manna bagels and manna cotti and we've had manna burgers and manna bread. All we have is manna, 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 manna. We're tired of manna. Don't they sound like little whining kids here? And they miss that God was giving them something that they didn't deserve. Not only that, they missed. They were free. They weren't enslaved anymore. But because they were so focused on the past, they failed to appreciate what God was doing for them in the present. 
And even though God provides for them time and time again throughout this journey to the promised land, over and over again, they continue to want to go back to Egypt. This even happened when they got to the promised land. I mean, that was the end game, right? They finally get to the promised land. They're on the border of the promised land, the edge of the promised land, and God says, send in some spies to check out the land. So they send in 12 spies. The spies come back, and 10 of them say, 10 of the 12 say, oh, yeah, it's a great land, just like God said, but there's no way we can ever live there because the people who are already living there, they're huge, they're massive, they're like giants, and they're much stronger than we are. There's no way that we can overtake them. We don't have the manpower, we don't have the strength to overtake them. And you know what? Those 10 spies were probably right in the sense that, yes, Israel did not have the manpower to take over that land. Did they forget that the God who parted the Red Sea was with them? But these 10 spies continue to say, we can't do it, we can't do it. And so you know how the people respond? Numbers 14 verse two says, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Really? I mean, after all that God had done for them, after all the ways that he had provided for them, after all the miracles that they had seen, I mean, the plagues in Egypt, the cloud during the day and fire at night, the parting of the Red Sea, manna from heaven, not to mention water from a rock, seeing God's presence on the mountain, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the list just goes on and on. After seeing and experiencing all that, you still want to go back to Egypt? Why? Remember what I said. It's easier to live in the comforts of captivity than embrace the uncertainty of change. You see, what the Israelites ended up doing is also what we do at times. We cling to what's predictable. We cling to what's known, what we're used to. Even if what's predictable, what's known, what we're used to, is slavery. And what happens when we cling to what's predictable is we end up settling for a life that is much less in the life God knows we can live. Before we left Kentucky, I got to coach Alex's soccer team. It was a soccer team of four and five-year-olds, and it was a lot of fun, but if you ever have coached this age group, you know it's like herding cats, and that's what it was. It was chaotic at times, but again, we had some fun, and here's a picture of the team that I coached, and I'll never forget our first practice. We had our first practice, and the kids were just everywhere. You know, None of them had probably played organized sports before, so they're kind of just everywhere, all over the field, running around, and I said, okay, guys, let's get together, and we got them in a big circle, and we stretched and we learned everybody's name and then I said the next thing we're gonna do is we're gonna run a little bit because you got to be in shape to play soccer and so I put them on one side of the field and I said we're gonna run down the field and back twice you know there and back there and back we're gonna run down the field and back twice no big deal these are four or five year olds I mean they have all the energy in the world and they immediately started to complain and whine and they didn't want to do that it's like I was pulling their teeth or something it was they were just act like I was torturing them I said come on let's do it so I blew the whistle they took off running and they ran there and back there and back and when they finished they continued to just whine 
moaning and complaining about how awful that was. And one little girl looked at me and she put her hands on her hips and she said, I didn't sign up for this. And I thought, what, you didn't sign up for soccer? And I thought, well, that makes sense. Maybe her parents signed her up and she really didn't want to play. And she said, no, I wanted to play soccer. I just didn't know that running was part of soccer. I thought, how'd you not know running? She obviously didn't know what soccer was. But you know, I've been in preaching ministry now for 16 years. And I've seen that same reaction in the church a lot, not about running and not about soccer, but on a spiritual level. I've seen people get real excited about Jesus. and They're ready to follow him. They wanna make Jesus their Lord. Jesus says, okay, I'll be your Lord. But what that means is you gotta let me lead your life. Okay, Jesus, yeah, you got it. Lead me where you wanna take me. And then Jesus starts to lead him. Wait a second, Jesus, I didn't sign up for that. I just want salvation in the end. I just want to get to heaven in the end. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. Part of following me is I want to change you. I want to transform you. I want to mold and shape you into the person that God knows you can be. So along the way, that's what I'm going to be doing. And we're just like, hang on a second, Jesus. I just want heaven at the end. I didn't sign up for all the rest of this stuff. And Jesus says, no, no, you're going to have to give up this or make this sacrifice or make this change. And we're saying, Jesus, I just don't know. And what we miss is what Jesus is trying to do in our lives is for our good so that we can live the best life possible, the life that God designed us to live. I've often said that the greatest leadership challenge Moses ever faced wasn't convincing Pharaoh to release the Israelites from Egypt, but it was leading the Israelites through the struggle they had with change after they left Egypt. And if we're being honest, we're not that different. I'm sure we've all had times in our lives where we've chosen to stay enslaved to something God wants to set us free from simply because we don't want to embrace the change that he wants to bring about in our lives. So my question is, how do we prevent that from happening? How do we make sure that we're prepared for the changes God wants us to make in our lives, that we don't make the same mistakes that the Israelites made, Well, I think we're given their example so that we can learn from them. And the first thing that we need to do is we need to change our perspective when it comes to life. The first thing we need to do is we need to see life as a journey. You see, rather than getting stuck in a certain period of our lives and romanticizing the past and romanticizing that part of our lives, what we need to do is see life as an ongoing journey, as a journey where God is trying to teach us something, trying to make us into the people he created us to be, trying to shape and mold us. See, there's a reason why God didn't lead the people along the shortest route to the promised land. Because God is a relational God. For us, we're all about the destination. But God, he's all about the journey. So confession time here real fast. I'm not a very patient person. I wish I was more patient. I need to be more patient. But I'm not a very patient person. I hate to wait in traffic. I always want to find a shortcut if I possibly can. I hate to wait in line. Anybody else hate to wait in line? I mean, I do. Let me just see. Let's see if you guys are with me here. How many of you have ever been in line at a grocery store in Walmart and you've been in the express checkout and you're waiting in line and you've counted the person in front of you's items to make sure that they have 15 items or less? Anybody ever done that before? Okay, I have to. Yeah, confession time, right? What about this? You ever pulled into a McDonald's parking lot and you've seen the line of cars in the drive-thru and you've tried to calculate in your mind, would it be faster for me to run inside and get my food or actually stay in the drive-thru? Anybody ever done that before? Okay, yeah, just about everybody. What about this? Have you ever cut through a parking lot in order to avoid a red light? Anybody done that before? Okay, uh, yeah, I have to. Um, And I'm not proud of that, but it's just the way it is. Like I said, I'm a transparent guy. I struggle with patience. I even struggle with patience when it comes my professional life. 
I mean, there are times that I look at our church and God's doing some great things. I'm like, okay, I want to get here. And God's like, yeah, we'll get there eventually. But I want to teach you all some stuff along the way. I'm like, no, no, God, let's just skip all that and let's get here. This is where we can be. This is where we should be. And God's like, yeah, you're going to get there eventually. But there's some stuff I want to do along the way before you get there. I struggle with patience sometimes. What's important to me is the destination. But what's important to God is the journey. And sometimes he slows us down because there's something that we need to learn along the way before we ever get to the destination. The Israelites wanted to leave Egypt on day one and get to the promised land on day two. But what they didn't want, God knew they needed. They needed the desert before they got to paradise. You see, God knew that they weren't ready for the promised land. They couldn't handle it. They needed the desert to prepare them for what was ahead. And when you see life as a journey with God, you understand that. That, yeah, we may go through some rough patches, but God allows us to go through those rough patches so that he can teach us something, so that we can learn something, so that he can mold us and shape us so that we will be fully ready to live out his purpose for our lives. So instead of getting stuck in one period of our lives, thinking, hey, that was the best times, what we need to do is just see life as a journey. The next thing that we need to do if we want to prepare for the changes that God wants to bring about in our lives is we need to make sure that we live with a sense of gratitude, that we live with a sense of gratitude every single day. See, the Israelites, they failed to appreciate what God was doing for them in the present, and we do this too. But instead of failing to appreciate and acknowledge how God is blessing us, what we need to do is live with a sense of gratitude and always be looking for the ways that God is working in our lives now. So often we focus on what we don't have and we lose sight on what we do have. The Israelites were so focused on times what they didn't have, like the food they had back in Egypt, that they missed how God was providing for them now, manna from heaven, or for that matter, giving them freedom. And over in the New Testament, Paul writes about the attitude that this generation of God's people had. He writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 about the Israelites during the Exodus period. These things happen as a warning to us, the church, so that we would not crave evil things as they did. Don't grumble as some of them did and then were destroyed. You see, most of us don't think that grumbling and complaining is a big deal and we definitely don't see it as a sin. But in the eyes of God... If you're constantly grumbling and complaining while he is blessing you, while he is working in your life, that is a big deal to him. And here's what I've learned. If we can't learn to be grateful now for what God has given us, we'll never be grateful for what we're asking him to do for us in the future. See, I think a phrase that we all need to learn is just four words, and it's this, it could be worse. Can you say that with me on the count of three at all of our campuses? Say that with me, one, two, three. It could be worse. So this week, when you open up your credit card bill and you look at what you owe, I want you to say it with me out loud, it could be worse. So when you get in your car this afternoon that's got 200,000 miles on it and you see somebody else driving a brand new sports car, I want you to say it with me, it could be worse. The next time you're driving through Tulsa and you're stuck in traffic and you're frustrated, I want you to say it out loud. Come on, say it with me right now. It could be worse. And when you walk into your house and you say, man, I wish we had more space. I wish we had more room. I want you to say, it could be worse. And tomorrow morning, when you wake up and you roll over and look at your spouse, I want you to say, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's a joke. I'm going to get some cards on that one. Okay. We've got to learn 
to be grateful for what we have now. Because honestly, we don't deserve anything God's given us. We don't deserve anything we have. He treats all of us much better than we deserve. And that's why we've got to learn to cling to him. That's the next thing that we need to do in order to prepare for the changes that might be ahead. We've got to learn now to cling to him. Rather than clinging to what's predictable, clinging to what's known, we need to learn to cling to him. And I think the reason why the Israelites panicked every single time that they faced change was because they didn't know God that well. They didn't trust him. They either thought he wasn't with them or maybe he couldn't handle the situation they were facing. I love how the scene at the Red Sea ends. Pharaoh's army approaches the Israelites and they panic. They truly are between a rock and a hard place. I mean, they've got the Red Sea on one side and they've got the Egyptian army on the other. There's nowhere for them to go. And just then, in that moment, the Bible says, Exodus 14, verse 19, then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Meaning, God got between Israel and the Egyptians so that the Egyptians couldn't overtake the Israelites. See, God hadn't brought his people that far to fail now. And the same is true for us today. God wants to set you free from whatever it is that's trying to hold you captive, that's trying to enslave you. And he's willing to step between that thing that's trying to enslave you and the future that he has for you. But in order for that to happen, you've got to learn to trust him. You've got to learn to follow him. You've got to learn to cling to him, knowing that he wants what's best for you. So yeah, his way of freedom may look a little risky, and his way of freedom may make us feel uncomfortable, but that's okay, because you know he knows what's best for you, and he's not going to bring you this far to fail now, so you cling to him. And when you know that God is with you, the predictability of slavery is never better than the uncertainty of freedom. And look what happens next in our story. After God gets in between the Israelites and the Egyptians, he appears to Moses, and look at what he says to Moses, Exodus 14, 15. Why are you crying out to me? And this next sentence is it's becoming one of my favorite sentences in all the Old Testament. Tell the Israelites to move on. In other words, Moses, I haven't brought you this far to fail now. Trust me. Freedom awaits you. It's time for you to move on. Don't settle for the predictability of slavery. Don't settle for what's comfortable. Don't be afraid to take a risk when I'm the one who's asking you to take a risk. The Israelites have been here long enough. It's time to move on. And I believe he wants to say the same thing to many of you today. And he may even want to say the same thing to our church. So what is it for you? What is it that you need to turn over to God and move on from? If he were physically present here speaking to us today, audibly speaking to us today, would he tell you to move on from something? What is it for you? Is it some sin in your past? 
Is it some temptation you're still struggling with? Is it some mistake you made years ago? Is it some addiction that you think you can't overcome? Is it some relationship in your life that's toxic? Is it some form of emptiness that's eating at you? What is it for you? What is it that if God audibly spoke to you right now, he would say, it's time to move on. You've been here long enough. And as a church, is there anything we need to move on from? Churches have a tendency sometimes to get stuck. And they can even be enslaved by different things. Traditions of men, religious rituals, outdated methods, apathy among its membership, selfishness, even just comforts in general. Churches can be enslaved by things. We can even be enslaved by past wounds. Because here's the thing, the church is made up of people and sometimes people get really burnt in the church. They get wounded by the church. And some people still refuse to serve or refuse to move on from those wounds even though that was years ago. What is it for our church today that we need to move on from? Because whatever it is, if God didn't struggle at all to handle the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, he's not gonna struggle to handle whatever we're dealing with today. Whatever it is, freedom awaits. Don't let uncertainty hold you back. God wants to set you free. It's time for us to move on. And we need to make sure that we never settle for what's predictable over what God knows is possible. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this time we've had to open up your word and learn from it. And Father, even though the Israelites made a lot of mistakes, Father, we can learn from those mistakes because we make them too. And Father, may we learn today to move on in the direction you want us to move in. Father, I pray for each individual listening to this message that if there's something they can move on, that they need to move on from, that they would turn it over to you and do just that. And Father, I pray for our church that we can move in the direction you want us to move. Thank you so much for the freedom that you give us through Jesus and through his powerful name that I pray, Christ Jesus, amen.